Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Christopher DiCarlo, and I took it left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. Woke up this morning, had a burning deep inside. Like when you're feeling it's all a big lie. I feel the pain, this hunger and despair. Stop the rhetoric of your teaching. Time for us to share. Well, welcome to another edition of Left of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Now and Nancy. And Nancy. Now 30% more in your face and a source of seven essential nutrients. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey guys, how are you doing? Good, thing. Oh, terrific. Welcome, Nancy. How are you? Oh, it's such a beautiful day outside. It's got to be got to be a good day when the sun is shining and it's warm. <laughs> I agree. Here I agree. in the Fraser Valley? Miracles are possible. <laughs> well, we got a big show going on today. Um, we've got... Uh, David Fitzgerald. We got an interview with David Fitzgerald, the author of Nail, the Ten Christian Myths that shows that Jesus did not exist. And uh, the theme of the show today is more like speaking your mind. So we'll go on all that today. Besides that, guys, anything you guys want to talk about real quick before we get into our usual? I'm good for the usual. Let's speak our minds. Let's speak our minds. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we might as well get into it right away then. We just stay in history. Okay, here we go. This Day in History, which is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between April 13th to April 26th. Okay, starting with April the 13th, that day is important because there were some very famous words spoken by an individual whose name you might remember. Let me tell you the words. Houston, we have a problem. Tom Hanks. <laughs> exactly. Second generation. <laughs> Absolutely. That was uh, Jim Lovell. And the reason in 1970 he spoke those words were that during the Apollo 13 mission, um, it was the, the day of the one of the most spectacular rescue missions in U.S. space history. There was an explosion, and it left the crew stranded for four days more than 200,000 miles from Earth. Talk about being stranded with a flat tire. Holy smokers. They didn't have OnStar at that time. No, that's for sure. They uh, actually were brought back safely with astronauts Fred Hayes, Jim Swigert, and Commander Jim Lovell. So all's well that ends well on this date. You know, on, in some um, like high-rise buildings and stuff, they don't have a 13th floor. They'll go from 12th to 14th. They should have just done it. It should have been Apollo 14, and then it would have been fine. <laughs> it would have solved all the problems. Yeah. Just look in, the, look in the crystal ball, eliminate that date, and yeah. what the heck? Yeah, there science, go for pseudo. <laughs> there is a rumor that they were actually flying on like the 13th day, and I, I forget the date exactly. Oh, come on. We don't, hour <laughs> we, don't, we don't believe in that nonsense, do we? <laughs> no. But it's fun to speak your mind about it. Yes, 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's move to April 14th, which is a more legitimate date. <laughs> that happens to be New Year's in South and Southeastern Asian cultures. And there mm-hmm. were more events on the 14th and 15th than we could take in take in for a year. It was just jam-packed. I had, a, had problems trying to pick out the most uh, important uh, events. Uh, of the most notable, uh, President Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater. The, Br- the British passenger liner, the Titanic, hit an iceberg and we, in the oh, North man. Atlantic, so yeah. we all knew about that. And then it, it sank the next day. But as you know me, I have that bizarre turn of mind. The story that eclipsed everything else was just a great day, an event called the Four Dead in Five Seconds event. <laughs> wow. All right. This is already very interesting. All right. Okay. This event took place in my favorite state, which is Texas. Oh, I was going to guess stuff. that. Yeah. Texas. That's where the weird stuff comes from. This was in El Paso. And in this story, there were heavily armed vaqueros from Mexico, cattle rustling, a posse, a bar fight, and the Texas Rangers as witnesses. So the, yeah, I wonderful. They just All you're missing is Chuck Norris. Here. That's right. He, Liz, he could Clint still. Eastern. He's that old. He still could have been there. We don't. Know. Anyway, this debacle ended up by the marshal who shot four dead in five seconds, thus giving the the name the four dead in five seconds. And the marshal that shot these guys dead had the best Texas marshal name ever. You ready? Dallas Studemeyer. <laughs> wow. I mean, that like a car. I know. <laughs> Dallas Studemeyer. Dale, Dallas I'm surprised Studemeyer. that's not a household name, really. It it really should be. I'm thinking <laughs> of doing my next T-shirt. You know. Lewis White Earp. There you go. <laughs> April fifteenth. Um, in our in our little twin days of big events here, April fifteenth is World Art Day, Holocaust Remembrance Day, Tax Day, Lincoln Death Day, and the Titanic actually sinking off of the shore of Nova Scotia. It's like disaster week. Here. It was. It's like no a frost kidding. special. It was. It was. It was a, what's tax day, though? Tax is day it? in the States, April 15th. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's their, that's yeah, their due date. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Got so it. naturally, with all of those events, I had to pick out... <laughs> The one that was the most interesting in 1931, and that was the first walk across America backwards. <laughs> really? Okay. Really? Okay. But why? Why? <laughs> now, in my favorite state, and you know by this time my favorite state, a, a lovely guy named Fenny Lawrence Wingo walked backwards from Santa Monica, California. Well, actually, he started in Fort Worth, Texas. And he had special glasses made so that he could walk backwards and see where he was going. But he was facing backwards. So he started uh, on April 15th from 1931. He thought it would take about four years or so. Um, And he was uh, 36 years old. And he documented the the voyage, uh, um, the trip. He got as far as San Francisco, and then he had to take the, um, actually he went the other way to New York, and had to take the ship. Whether he walked backwards on the ship, 
while it was in transit to Europe, I haven't the slightest idea. He was going around the world? He was going around the world, but he only made it to Turkey because the political situation was such that they said, no, no, you can't come in. No walking backwards on our That's country. Right. <laughs> That's right. So he, it only took him uh, about a year, and while he was gone... I don't understand this, but his wife divorced him because she thought he was totally out of his, out of his mind. So you, you know, it's, it's I, funny because he, when he's wife, walking yeah. into those, uh, those regions that are not, you know, kind of heavy, you could get kidnapped and all that. They're seeing this guy walking backwards, saying, "You know, we're not touching this guy. This guy's nuts." <laughs> That's right. But he he did average twenty miles a day, believe it or not, and wore out four pairs of shoes and. Um, made his living selling postcards and doing odd little things. So, you know, he he lived his dream. He came back. <laughs> he came back, lived his life in in Texas. And don't laugh at the man's dream. I'm sorry. He even if it is ass backwards. <laughs> yeah, but but he's in the wax Ripley's wax museum, and he's buried in Wichita Falls. And there is no falls in Wichita Falls anymore. But that's if anybody wants to go. You know, and that's pay a little homage <laughs> to living the dream. He beats there. Wow. Okay. He's like, yeah, I don't have a job. I may as well walk backwards around the world. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's what any of us would do. <laughs> April 17th is Women's Day in Gabon. So, in honor of Women's Day, we all know Amelia Earhart. But in 1964, a lady named Jerry Mock actually became the first woman to fly solo around the world. Who remembers her? I mean, she's just, you know, she's in the archives of history, and although everybody celebrates uh, everything that Amelia did, and I guess because she got lost and she became this this heroine, they had to find her. But uh, Geraldine Mock, uh, in her uh, spirit of Columbus, Cessna, named Charlie, she nicknamed it Charlie, uh, no one's heard about her yet. It began in March, March 19, 1964, um, in Columbus, Ohio. Took 29 days, 21 stopovers, 22,000 miles, a little over to complete, and then whammo into relative obscurity. But it was a wonderful thing that she did in a very small plane. That's cool. Her name is Geraldine Mock? Mock, M-O-C-K. I'm going to look her up now. you got to look her up, absolutely. 1982, um, Canada adopted the new constitution. Um, By 1967, we had the power to amend the constitution. Uh, Oh, we did not have the power to amend parliament. Uh, British Parliament had to do that. And then in 67, the new constitution was accompanied by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and an amending for a formula that would no longer require an appeal to British Parliament. So that was a good day. And unfortunately, yeah. on the Canadian constitution, there is an appeal to God in the preamble, essentially. We, did, we didn't mm-hmm. have a choice. To, we, we didn't have a chance to do Well, we did have a chance like the, to do it like the states, but... They chose not to, and yeah. but the but Supreme Court later on came by and say that declared that Canada was a secular country. Every Supreme Court ruling has upheld a secular nation. It's only in the preamble; it's not in the charter itself. Yeah. So I know a lot of people use that as an excuse, but but the Supreme Court has never ruled in anything but a secular manner. 
That's right. I mean, and just just this last week, they did rule that the um, gov- local governments, I think this is applicable to all governments, cannot start the meetings with a prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So the Supreme Court affirmed that, and I think that's going to have some, depending on which side of the religious fence you're on, I think that has going to have some really interesting yeah, Something to keep on looking at. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. April 18th was an interesting day. Do you remember in 1993 the um, Branch Davidians? Yes, Waco. At Waco. Well, this was the day that it all literally blew up. And uh, David uh, Koresh was the the head, and he was absolutely insane, I think, yeah. and used the religious group. He also thought he was the reincarnation of Jesus or something like that. Uh, he, he did, and he took in a lot of vulnerable people, and a lot of people say, oh, this is what happens with religion, but I think it, it happened when an insane person uses religion, you know, for his own manipulations, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. April 21st was the Queen's real birthday, and April 22nd was Earth Day, uh, which began in 1970, and so this is the 45th. So in, in thinking that it was Earth Day, I went in an entirely different direction, and I thought, are there still people who believe in the flat Earth? And guess what? <laughs> there is a Canadian Flat Earth Society. Oh! No! Absolutely. Um, the Flat Earth Society of Canada was established on... a November 8th in 1970 by a guy whose name is Leo Ferrari. <laughs> I know, and I, I don't know whether there's any connection to the car or not, but um, there were three of them, and there, the uh, Flat Earth Society is still active with a podcast, and they have a fa- they have a forum. There's a podcast. There's a podcast. Oh, and you a- there's only three of them. Well, the three of them started it. Oh, we should still listen I, to that. I think that yeah. I think there are about two thousand members, and they call themselves Plano Terrestrarians. I can't even say it. Plano <laughs> Terrestrarians. There we go. So the main aims are to combat the fallacious deification of the circle, to restore man's confidence in the validity of his own perceptions, and to spearhead man's escape from his metaphysical and geometrical prison. The deification of the circle? Yes, because they believe that the earth is more like a disc than a circle. Is this a spoof group? No, no, no. This is a real group, and I actually emailed them because I told them um, that I uh, had a segment on a podcast doing history and that I was very interested in their group, and would they please email me back so I could learn more about them. And I didn't hear from them, but I subsequently went to their forum, and uh, they're they're quite active. They're still very active on that forum. (laughs) We should almost invite them on the podcast and have a nice debate about this. Yeah. Insane, they, wow. they used to publish a newsletter called the Official Chronicle, but now they have uh, they have the website. I wish they had responded. I was really hoping, you know, that they would. And I actually emailed them about two months ago, and hopefully, you know, in advance to be able to say, guess what, you know. But hmm, no. that's too bad. It is too bad. Yeah. At well. any rate, they, it's nice, interesting to know that they're that they're still there. Um, April 23rd was Openly Secular Day when they encouraged people to make a video to say I'm openly secular and to identify themselves. Yeah, that was on social media. We coming saw out social media. Yeah, and um, so there were a lot of people that participated, and that was part of the Dawkins 
uh, foundation and a, and a couple of other coalitions. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and April the 26th, which is today, is World Intellectual Property Day. So would you consider this intellectual property, Kevin? Or, or is the radio well, show this intellectual? podcast? Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't like the idea of intellectual property. Uh, I don't like the idea of copyright to begin with. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I know it's it's always in a question of to make profits. Yeah. And we're, we're non-profit, so I don't think we should consider ourselves intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Uh, the statute of end was the actual uh, original copyright law, and it was only supposed to be 14 years. But now with lobbying and all that, it's almost like 100 years, yeah. and it's ridiculous. And it's also one of the reasons why we get nothing original, whether in the world of music or anything like that. So, yeah. is this Original material, yeah. Is it is it intellectually our property? I don't know. Well, you can go on on either side. The yeah. important thing is you know, totally how, how you that. how you view it. Yeah. That's it. So um, here's a really interesting article advocating what we now call email. So I'm going to tell you, and, I, and then I want you to guess when you think this article was written in the New York Times. The New York Times reported that sending mails by electricity was to be investigated by the Post Office Committee of the U.S. House um, as uh, contracts would be provided by a certain company, and that the proposal was that since um, the transportation of letters at this point was already done by contract, that the delivery of emails or delivery of mails by electricity seemed analogous and something that should should follow um, other forms of delivery. Um, it was proposed that such a method would be economical and, and this is a quote, might speedily make the present volume of business seem infantile. Any yeah. guess as to when that might be? I'll venture a guess. Uh, I might not be able to put this on a date, but I think I think it's it's old enough. Uh, it had to be uh, when the invention of uh, uh, the telegraph it had to be around that time, I would think. Because you were sending messages via electricity at that point, right? Yeah, I gave you that little clue. 1884. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. But these ideas, people have the ideas, but they just don't have the technology to bring it to bring it about. So that was that was an idea that was really waiting for the technology to, to bring it about. Mm. Well, but were they talking about the telegraph? Probably. I mean, it did revolutionize the world. It was the internet of its age. It, it was, and it, 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 it really did. Was. It was yeah. amazing. The changes it made. And on that note, dear listeners, we bring to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual. And occasionally bizarre events, as long as I'm doing the segment, <laughs> and people that make up this day in history. <laughs> well, thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. More welcome. food for thought. And we'll be right back right after this. Are you tired of being misunderstood or misrepresented? As a public service, the crew at Left at the Valley proudly presents Know Your Fallacies with Liam Johnson. Good evening. I've taken time out of my busy schedule to briefly explain to you, the free thinker, the finer points of logical fallacies. With some practice, attention to detail, and of course, my guidance, you too will easily disarm any puny, motley-minded mammoth who dares cross linguistic blades with you. Today, let's look at another attack only a gore-bellied plumpian would use. The Argument from Authority. An argument from authority is an argument in which a proposition is claimed to be true because an esteemed person says it is true. 
It is a fallacy in that it relies on the person's fame and reputation rather than on logical arguments or empirical evidence. This is a logical fallacy because the user forgets that an authority doesn't make a person an expert on a particular subject. This appeal to authority is used in an attempt to muddy the waters and wow the crowd with sleight-of-hand terminology by villainous miscreants, or unwillingly by quailing joltheads unaware of the flaws in their own arguments. But you, my friend, are a free thinker, and as such can avoid this pitfall by calmly pointing out that authorities can and often are wrong. Think of the hell-hated politician. They are looked upon as an authority, but what exactly are they experts at? besides gorging themselves from the public purse. Look upon transforming the pox-marked argument from authority into a devastating argument from experts, and your lumpish bugbear of an opponent can only wince in pain at the glaring logic with which you have skewered them. Now go forth, my friends, and remember, knowledge is power. The one who knows wins. Until next time. Well, thank you so much, Liam, for that. It's always interesting to learn about this kind of stuff. Yeah, take that, Dr. Oz. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't get me started on that guy. Jeez, Dr. Oz. (laughs) Yeah, apparently apparently he's fighting back, huh? He's he's fighting back. He didn't didn't have a whole lot to fight with, but the, the, the man is a brilliant surgeon. But once he steps into other territories, yeah. he's vulnerable he's a to attack. <laughs> well, you know, my my uh, rule of thumb was always never trust anybody pushed by Oprah. D- there you go. I think she's the biggest phony to begin with, Oprah. I mean, I remember that time where the, uh, was it Hurricane Katrina? And she made this big fanfare about donating, I think it was like $20,000 to Katrina, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you compare to how much the money the woman has, it's like you and I giving two hundred bucks, you know. And it was like, come on, really? You're making a show about this? It's like, yeah, you're a phony. I know. I'm just glad I'm not in the public eye where everything I do is going to be so open <laughs> to critic. You got to get, got to have a thick skin. But uh, anyway, Liam's. Uh, 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 segment I think was was really timely considering the fact that Dr. Oz is on the hot seat at this point. Totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, so today's show is about essentially uh, speaking your mind, and we get a lot of things going about that, including an interesting story about the Pope. What do you guys think about the Pope, Pope Frank? Overall, um, overall, I think he's a good contemporary pope. I think he's doing his best. I think he's a sincere man. I think he's doing his best. I think he's limited by his religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't expect, I was going to say you can't expect miracles, but <laughs> all these cliches come to mind and you realize, wait a minute, I'm talking about the Pope, of course you're going to expect miracles. <laughs> anyway, Karen, you, you, I, I cut you off, I didn't No, no, I, I agree with you, I think he's on a short leash, uh, short leaf. <laughs> leash, a short leash. Um, from all the, you know, whatever papal people around him. <laughs> I don't know much about Apple, the Catholic Church. people, I like yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they don't, I think, I think he probably, uh, he does mean well, but he is extremely limited, like you said. Well, I, I'm, I'm uh, going to be less generous than you ladies uh, towards uh, Pope Frank. I think he's a phony, too. Uh, I think he comes out saying, I think he realizes that the Christians are in trouble. He comes out saying what he thinks the public wants to hear, but then right after that, the college cardinals and all that—they all, they all turn around and it's business as usual, you know. Uh, yeah, gays are great, but you know what? It doesn't stop anything in their doctrine. Their doctrine hasn't changed at all whatsoever. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like 
they, it's it's all the people around him who say, you know, we're not, you know, we'll put you up here as the nice as the nice figure that people can relate to because you seem so nice, and then we're gonna still do whatever it is we're doing. Well, so. he's got a great PR machine. But speaking of Pope, our uh, things that make you go hmm story today is uh, coming from the Raw story. Now the uh, Coke back, you know, the Coke brothers. They have a think tank, and they plan to send climate change deniers to Rome in the hopes of convincing Pope Francis not to support the United Nations' actions on the environment. The Libertarian Heartland Institute, perhaps best known for working alongside cigarette manufacturers to question the dangers of secondhand smoke, will host a workshop featuring two quote-unquote real scientists Tuesday in Rome ahead of a Vatican summit on the environment, although the group neglected to identify the scientists. Uh, Pope Francis apparently plans to issue an uh, encyclical letter this summer that will address environmental issues, and he's been vocal about this lately, and uh, very likely climate change, which would make uh, the issue of moral and religious concern for Christians worldwide. So the Vatican Summit will feature uh, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and the Harvard economist Jeffrey Stack, uh, who the conservative group complained ignore, quote, Abundant data showing human greenhouse gas emissions are not causing a climate crisis. So, you, in other words, you have big money, big conservative money, trying to convince the Pope not to say to all these Christians out there that no, 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 everything's fine. Global warming is the world of word of God, I guess, or the will of God. Um, they said proposed international regulations on airborne pollutant would amount to a radical reordering of global economies that will cause massive reduction in human freedom and prosperity. Yeah, because prosperity is really important at that point. The Holy Father is being misled by experts at the United Nations. Yeah. <laughs> Who have proven unworthy of his trust, said Joseph Bass, president of the Heartland Institute. Humans are not causing a climate crisis on God's green earth. In fact, they are fulfilling their biblical duty to protect and use it for the benefit of humanity. Though Pope Francis' heart is surely in the right place, he would do his block in the world a disservice by putting the moral authorities behind the United Nations unscientific agenda on the climate. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I love the double speak of the Koch brothers and the Republicans in general. If it has a really lovely American apple pie name, you know there's a diabolical <laughs> agenda. Oh, yeah. It's yes. like the Heritage Foundation. What is this family one? Values. The family oh, values. Family yeah. values. Yeah. So that's, that's your first clue that the rich nut jobs are, are behind <laughs> it. Anybody can write a letter to the Pope. Any organization yeah. can do that. And I think really that the the Pope and hopefully his advisors and those around him know where the letter is coming from and know that it has absolutely zipped scientific value yeah. in the world. So that's wonderful. They wrote it, but is it going to get any traction? Nah. Well, they're doing more <laughs> than just so. they're doing more than just writing, right? They're sending some guys out yeah. there to yeah, basically lobby him, right? Yeah, but exactly. It's, I think uh, the Koch brothers have kind of overstepped what they. <laughs> I mean, he's the Pope. He has millions and millions of devout followers all over the world. Their power does not extend that far, exactly. no matter what they might think. Yeah, but this is why they're trying to they're trying to convince him desperately. To I know, but I'm, what I'm saying is that the Pope has far more power than they do, and he can't. They can't threaten him in any way. So I, he's going to. They don't have any way that they can hurt the Pope. So no, what? What do they think they're going to accomplish? But they're not threatening him. They're essentially trying to convince him that. I know that, but what I'm saying is they have no power over him. They have no ability to manipulate him or or bribe him or whatever. Like there's nothing that they could offer him that he doesn't already have. 
So I think uh, they're, I, I, you know, they can try all they want, but I don't think it's going to make a difference exactly. personally. I think in some ways it's analogous to the uh, how many Republicans that sent the letter to Iran saying, no, no, oh, don't, wow. don't do the deal, don't do the deal. Yeah, that was a we, Yeah, because there's an election coming and we'll do a better deal after we get in. And maybe you don't understand U.S. politics. And it's like half of the guys in Iran went to U.S. schools and it was like, are you kidding me? You're insulting our intelligence. I think it's the same thing. I think mm-hmm. it's a group of people that think because they have a certain amount of power that they can influence anybody, mm-hmm. whether or not it makes sense or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. They don't. They don't have enough power to. And if they do. I'm going to really be worried. <laughs> I, I don't know what to think about the Koch brothers personally. I mean, uh, I think uh, oh. half the time it's it's uh, they 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 fund a lot of uh, money into uh, the Fraser Institute here, right? And I, I, for the life of me, I still can't understand why people listen to that Gong Show. Oh, I know, it's ludicrous, quote unquote think tank. But then again, then you you turn around and then you see that David Koch will fund money to something like PBS, and then you say, oh. <laughs> Jeez, man, <laughs> I don't know what to think now. You know, we know you do a lot of nasty, nasty stuff, but then you turn around and do something actually that makes some sense. Well, it may make some sense to his to you know tax write-offs. It may make sense mm-hmm. in a long-term agenda, but I don't think it means I'm suddenly becoming a uh, a bleeding heart liberal. And now I'm mm-hmm. you know I want to show you that you know a wink and a nod. You know, part of my heart is really with you. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I. I, I just can't be fair and I can't be fair and balanced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. With I them. think they're yeah. evil. <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah. donating money to PBS that's not going to uh, cause them any harm in any way. But it is a good PR move. So. It is a good PR move. Yeah, yeah totally. You guys are ready for a few adventures of Father Absolutely. Oh, let's go with that. Time for another installment in The Adventures of Father Vern. It's quite late out there. Hadn't been used in a while. 
have you been drinking? Only water, officer. Um, Father I, I smell alcohol and I see a half-empty bottle of wine on your lap. Praise Jesus! He's done it again! The Lord truly works in mysterious ways. Join us next time for more Adventures of Father Burry. <laughs> yeah, that was more Adventures of Father Burry. <laughs> no, not appreciating? Uh, You're always speechless, huh? I am always speechless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. You know what? Um... Like we said, today was about uh, talking about uh, speaking your mind. And Nancy, you you told me that you are about to give a bit of a presentation. I am. I um, initially was part of a group at uh, Abbotsford Community Services that was called Bridges to Faith. And it was a, an interfaith group. And I was pleased to be able to join because I felt that the group needed uh, to know who we were, who the atheists and humanists were. And it was a good balance to be able to explain our point of view, answer questions. And uh, since then, the group itself um, got defunded, unfortunately, but it's still in existence as a, um, as a uh, volunteer organization. So the uh, people who ran the program at uh, Abbotsford Community Services, which is the diversity program, asked me if I would give a small talk to a group of boys at a basketball um, team. Um, I guess their age range is going to be about between 10 and 16. And if I would uh, speak to them about atheism and humanism, and I don't know who they've had talked to the group before. I don't know what religions that they've been exposed to. I don't know the makeup of the group. I saw it as basically a wonderful opportunity to talk to young people uh, about atheism um, and humanism because where else are they going to be able to have somebody stand in front of them and say, I'm an atheist, I'm a humanist, and here's who we are. And I feel it's a wonderful opportunity. It um, totally is, a great opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, so here's the question. What What is the best way to make the most of this opportunity? Uh, what do you think I ought to cover? What do you think is important? And how do you think the parents of these kids are going to going to react? knowing that an atheist humanist has spoken to their kids. Two questions there. <clears throat> well, you want to go first? No, go ahead. Well, I think <laughs> I'll go I'll go with the second question first. Okay. I think I think the people that will react will be in the there might be some, but it's probably going to be in the minority uh because most Canadians are just apathetic about that and, you know, most kids just don't share that kind of information with their parents. So I don't think there's a problem there. Um as to what you would tell them, um, all the other religions that have been invited there, and I've, I shouldn't even use the word other religions because, you know, atheism mm-hmm. is not a religion, but all the other religions that were invited there are probably trying to sell themselves. Um, if we're going to try to sell something, let's sell science. Let's sell awe to them, you know, and let's sell, let's sell that kind of inspiration and hope. And that, uh, that's what I would hope you would go with. Uh, atheism is simply one a response to one question. 
how much how much can you put into that? You know, I think we have you could say, well, okay, we don't we don't believe in the in in, in a divine being, a divine creator, but that that stays there. I think the world is much more magical, a bit like what Dawkins was trying to do with his book, The Magic of Reality. When you look at the fantastic world that's around us without the uh, the god goggles on, and the uh, Einstein also said the greatest uh, uh, experience of the mystery is the greatest feeling there is, right? Mm. And I think that every one of us has, has taken a look at something and say, "Wow, this is fascinating. I wonder, you know, I wonder this, I wonder that." And I think that should be the basis of your your speech. Well, I I uh, I'm sure Nancy has lots of good ideas. And I'm not gonna like, tell her what she should say. Oh no, please <laughs> don't, oh, please tell me what to say. Don't assume anything. <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, uh, although I agree with you about science, I'm um, I'm much more of a humanist. Like that is where I, that's what's really most important to me. And I would emphasize that we are here to help each other, and th- that's what we need to do and regardless of whether or not we're going to go to heaven or not whether we believe that or not we are here to help each other while we can and um as far as being concerned about what the parents are going to say well uh like i said to you before like you send your kids to public school because they are going to learn things that they don't already know and they're going to experience things or or hear about things that they've not heard about and that that's part of the process and that doesn't mean they have to agree with it or believe it they can take it or leave it, but um, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't know that it exists. Oh, exactly. So. I think it's a it's a balancing act between giving them information and appearing as though I'm trying to Pros- deconvert yeah. them or yeah. proselytize yeah. them. Yeah, and I and, and and I I I know that you are the most diplomatic person ever, and I have no <laughs> doubts that you will do that very well and just say, look, I, I'm just this is who I am, and. That's all there is, you know. I'm not trying to make you believe what I believe. No, yeah, these kids I, need to live, to hear that we believe in them instead of we believe in a God. You know, this is what they need to learn to hear. They need to hear that we believe in them, that we believe in a bright future for them, and they can make it happen. I think so. I think one of the things too is that um, atheism gets such a bad rap because it's the definition of atheism is is so mis not, sometimes misunderstood but sometimes mm-hmm. deliberately um Often mis, deliberately. yeah uh, characterized yeah. yeah. um and when it comes right down to it i think the kids need to know that the only thing atheism is is we don't believe in the supernatural it's mm-hmm. not that you deny god it's just that you don't believe there are gods and there's a huge difference so hopefully i can at least let them know that there are some positive things in the word atheism and that it's not a capital A atheism it's atheism the way it is a basketball player or a mother mm. or a daughter a uh, radio announcer it's part of a category and not a religion yeah, mm-hmm. yeah totally mm-hmm. you know, and, and we can easily remind them that you know everybody's an atheist when it comes exactly. to Zeus you know, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody in the corner of the world somewhere that still believes yeah. in Zeus, but for the vast majority of us, no, no one believes in Amun Ra anymore. And what's the difference? We just, like Dawkins said, we just go one god further, right? Yeah, and, and hope, hopefully in a short period of time, I can 
you know, have the kids look at me and say, you know, I didn't see any horns coming out of her <laughs> her uh, forehead, and she didn't seem to be imbibing in baby smoothies. So, you know, maybe she's a human. <laughs> maybe smoothies. <laughs> maybe yeah. you know, maybe atheists are just maybe they're just like us. They just believe differently, and that really is my goal. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. Well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully you can also make sure to mention our podcast. You know, say, hey, if you want to learn more, listen to Nancy on the podcast. Exactly. So I'm sure they'll want to follow you more because you know everybody just gravitates to you anyway. <laughs> anyway, thanks, thanks for your help. I appreciate the. He appreciate the support, and I will let you know next time how yes, it goes. Please do. Good luck. I will. You yeah, thank you. I every can use faith it. that it will go well. Isn't that interesting how we were just talking about this? I said, I have every faith you'll do well, and yeah. we're talking about, <laughs> oh, don't expect miracles. And your religion is so much a part of our language without us even realizing oh, it. Totally. It is. Well, you know what's also part of education for the kids is uh, sex. They don't have a lot of sex education, but I thought I'd give you guys some tips because um, you know there is sex in the Bible. And uh, I've got I've got a little list here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I know it's out of left field, isn't it? it? Yeah, it really was. Well, <laughs> they do some, actually get sex education in school, just to yeah, clarify. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> we thought we'd give you a couple of lessons about sex approved by the Bible. Uh, so here are some lessons learned from the Bible when talking about sex. Uh, what you thought Christianity was down into carnal pleasures of the flesh? Well, ponder that as you one. You can use the sermon as you mount. You know, I know you think Jesus was giving you a lesson here, but uh, you might as well make this dull pep talk about how awesome it is to be miserable in the eyes of Yahweh fun, no? Or how about eating honey from your lion? You know, this fun twist on Samson's life exploit sounds way more fun and probable than finding real honey inside a deceased feline. If you remember the story of, of Samson, that's what happens. Yeah. Or you could be swallowing Jonas. Hey, who said all the whales had more fun, right? Go ahead and harpoon your mate and see if you can hold him for 72 hours. <laughs> How about raising your Lazarus? Jesus was well known for spending time with the boys on the getaway fishing trip, but this best miracle was creating a full-body Viagra effect 2,000 years before Pfizer gave us the little blue pill. And finally, get behind me, Satan. Kind of makes you think, <laughs> makes you rethink this whole homophobia thing, huh? <laughs> Need I say more about all this? No, no, we're good. We're, we're good. done. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Speak Your Mind program, so Karen and I are sitting here smiling and very patiently waiting for it to be over. <laughs> hey, you don't like my list. Okay, well, uh, speaking of speaking your mind, um, the late Christopher Hitchens was one of those guys that would speak his mind. And Mark sent us a, uh, a, a little blurb on the uh, Mother Teresa. You know, uh, everybody looks at her. She's like one of those sacred cows, you know. It's Mother Teresa. Come on. Everybody loves her, right? But apparently she was not what she was all, <clears throat> what it all seems. That's all coming out now. Yeah, it's it? all coming out now. And uh, at the time when he was alive, Christopher called it. And uh, I guess I might as well go ahead and play that right away. Some years ago, the late Christopher Hitchens released a documentary called Mother Teresa, Hell's Angel. In it, he investigated whether Mother Teresa of Calcutta deserved her saintly image and examined her campaigns against contraception and abortion and her relationships with right-wing political leaders. In the March 2013 issue of the journal Studies in Religion Sciences, a paper by Serge Larravee, Genevieve Chenard of the University of Montreal and Carol Sanachel of the University of Ottawa further dispels a myth of altruism and generosity surrounding Mother Teresa, 
whose real name was Agnes Gonaxia. The paper is an analysis of the published writings about Mother Teresa. Like the journalist and author Christopher Hitchens, who is amply quoted in their work, the researchers conclude that her hallowed image, which does not stand up to the study of facts, was constructed, and that her beatification was orchestrated to be an effective media relations campaign. The three researchers collected over 500 documents on the life and works of Mother Teresa. After eliminating 195 duplicates, they consulted 287 documents to conduct their research, representing 96% of the literature on the founder of the Order of the Missionaries of Charity, or OMC. In their article, the trio also cite a number of problems not taken into account by the Vatican in Mother Teresa's beatification process such as her rather dubious way of caring for the sick, her questionable political contacts, her suspicious management of the enormous sums of money she received, and her overly dogmatic views regarding, in particular, abortion, contraception and divorce. At the time of her death, Mother Teresa had opened over 500 missions, welcoming the poor and the sick in more than 100 countries. The missions have been described as homes for the dying, by doctors visiting several of these establishments in Calcutta. Two-thirds of the people come to these missions hope to find a doctor to treat them, while the other third lay dying without receiving the appropriate care. The doctors observed a significant lack of hygiene as well as a shortage of actual care, inadequate food and no painkillers. The problem is not a lack of money. The foundation created by Mother Teresa has raised hundreds of millions of dollars but rather a particular conception of suffering and death. There is something beautiful in seeing the poor accept their lot, to suffer like Christ's passion. The world gains much from their suffering, was her reply to criticism as cited by Christopher Hitchens. Nevertheless, when Mother Teresa required care for a serious illness, she received it in a modern American hospital. Mother Teresa was generous with her prayers, but rather less so with the Foundation's millions when it came to humanity's suffering. Despite numerous floods in India, or following the explosion of a pesticide plant in Papal, she offered numerous prayers and medallions of the Virgin Mary, but no direct or monetary aid. On the other hand, she had no qualms about accepting the Legion of Honor and a grant from the dictatorship in Haiti. Millions of dollars were transferred to the MCO's various bank accounts, but most of these accounts were kept secret. Despite these disturbing facts, how did Mother Teresa succeed in building an image of holiness and infinite goodness? Well, according to the three researchers, her meeting in London in 1968 with the BBC's Malcolm Muggeridge, an anti-abortion journalist who shared her right-wing Catholic values, was crucial. Muggeridge decided to promote Teresa, who consequently discovered the power of mass media. In 1969, he made a film of the missionary, promoting her by attributing to her the first photographic miracle, when it should have been attributed to a new film stock being marketed by Kodak. Afterwards, Mother Teresa travelled throughout the world and received numerous awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize. In her acceptance speech on the subject of Bosnian women who were raped by the Serbs and now sought abortion, she said... I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a direct war, a direct killing, direct murder by the mother herself. 
Following her death, the Vatican decided to waive the usual five-year waiting period to open the beautification process. The miracle attributed to Mother Teresa was the healing of a woman who had been suffering from intense pain. The woman testified that she was cured after a medallion blessed by the Mother Teresa was placed on her abdomen. Her doctors thought otherwise. The ovarian cyst and tuberculosis from which she suffered were healed by the drugs they had given her. The Vatican nevertheless concluded that it was a miracle. Mother Teresa's popularity was such that she had become untouchable for the population which had already declared her a saint. Despite her dubious ways of caring for the sick by glorifying their suffering instead of relieving it, Serge Larivy and his colleagues point out the positive effects of the Mother Teresa myth. If an extraordinary image of Mother Teresa conveyed in the collective imagination has encouraged humanitarian initiatives that are genuinely engaged with those crushed by poverty, we can only rejoice. It is likely that she inspired many humanitarian workers whose actions have truly relieved suffering of the destitute and addressed the causes of poverty and isolation without being extolled by the media. Nevertheless, the media coverage of Mother Teresa could have been a little more rigorous. Thank you. Yep. Mother Teresa, huh? Yeah, that's like saying the the slave owners that whipped the slaves ought to be lauded because they started the civil rights movement. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, fine, you know, she started, you know, a lot of humanitarian uh, organizations and thoughts, but her behavior was certainly, as no. we know now, was not as, as uh, admirable as we thought it was at the no. time. No, apparently there's a lot of, uh, there's some letters where she wrote herself, you know, uh, where she was expressing doubt. No, saying, you know, she speaks to heaven and there's no reply all the time. So mm-hmm. even Mother Teresa in her final years was unsure. And I'm kind of shocked at the uh, the level of what it takes to be considered a miracle. It seems like, it seems very benign now. Is uh, What is it? <laughs> it's low, know. right? I mean... I have no idea. Put a medal on somebody that has been blessed by her and she's healed and that's it? That That's a miracle? That's... Could we do the same with a picture of Christopher Hitchens? You know, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. What's the standard there? We need a better yeah. standard of miracle. I think that. Christopher Hitchens would come back and haunt us if we did that. Actually, yeah. he'd be infuriated. <laughs> we could but say it's a non-miracle. It's a non-miracle. <laughs> Atheism lives. It's a non-miracle. <laughs> yeah, totally. I just have to say, in, in defense of you know millions of, of believers, there is no way. Well, no easy way for the standard person to to know about all those the the things that she did and lied about and all that. I mean, I've never been to Calcutta. I couldn't go see her um, her hospitals and all that. And so it took people coming forward to reveal these things. So exactly. you know, we, we can't all be blamed for thinking that she was a saint. Although now we can, if you continue to think that, because of now we know the truth. Yeah. But uh, at you know, the time, that was well controlled information. Uh, not, not just that. With the advent of the internet, we can go and look ourselves. Right? We can actually see uh, what she was doing. The, the footage that was not easily available because she she died what in the eighties, I think. No, no, it was later 90s? than that. Nineties. It's been a while yeah. now. So, so so still, you know, you still didn't quite have access to that kind of information as you do today. So. Uh, no. Great PR campaign for her. I mean, Mother Teresa. I mean, who can't 
He didn't like Mother Teresa. Little tiny old lady. little old lady. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, it was like much she's... easier to declare miracles before the internet. <laughs> yeah, you're right <laughs> about that. <laughs> yes. Miracles and, and recording devices too. Recording. Oh, there was exactly. a sun drops and miracles right after that. <laughs> sun sun drop. A dearth of miracles. <laughs> you know, we should invent a toaster. They, we put the electrical wire in a certain pattern so that it actually does make a face. On it when you toast it. They already it. have that. They'd have that. They oh, have that. Actually, that. you can you can upload your picture and the toast will have a face. Coolness. Your face. I want that. <laughs> if you're uber geek, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just called me an uber geek. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Speak your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we got this uh, the interview with David Fitzgerald. Speaking of a guy speaking his mind, uh, he went out. Uh, as an, as, the guy was fantastic, by the way. Fantastic interview. Great guy. And uh, he just went out and he just asked the most basic question, you know, which was, is, was there really a Jesus? And you think, you know, it's something that even I, growing up, never questioned. You know, it was like, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could question something like, well, was there a Robin Hood? Yeah, of course, it was. he was only a character. But nobody ever thought of questioning, is there really a Jesus? So it's a fantastic interview. It goes about um, 28 minutes. And uh, we'll be concluding the show right after that, so I guess I'll play that. Okay, our next guest is an author who dared question long-standing belief about the supposed historicity of a Jewish carpenter. His book, Nail, created a firestorm of controversy amongst believers and non-believers alike. He's a snappy dresser, a great dancer, and like all historians, he could probably hold his liquor with the best of them. David Fitzgerald. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. See that, David? They just love you here. Oh, my public. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming to the to the Valley. Um, Dave, what prompted the writing of this book? Give, give us a brief history about yourself and how you got to doing what you're doing now. Sure. Actually, it's kind of a great question because I was a total happy atheist for years and years. Uh, it never even crossed my mind that there might not have been a Jesus until... I started being curious about what it is that he really said and really did and how much of it was just legendary creation that came later. Once I started looking into that question, that's where all my troubles began. And now, 15 years later, long story short, I don't think there was any such guy as Jesus at all. I don't even think he was an amalgamation of different Jewish figures. I don't think he was an overrated historian. Uh, sorry, an uh, overrated historical figure. I think he was, in fact, a Jewish version of the mystery faith. I think he was the deity figure of a Jewish version of the mystery faith. What exactly, period. What exactly do you mean by mystery faith, for those of us who might not exactly understand that? Sure. During the Hellenistic period, and by that I mean like, say, after the time of Alexander the Great, uh, from around 300 BC until well into the first and second, third centuries, the idea in religions was a personal savior. And what they did in this period is they rebooted old gods from old pantheons and turned them into new mystery faith gods. Each mystery faith had its own god or goddess, and they all had their own sacred rituals like communal meals. Um, like baptism, um, and all of them featured a personal relationship with your own savior deity. And Christianity, when we look at it, it is nothing more than a Jewish version 
of that exact same theological trend. So they so they essentially took a, an old idea and adapted them for their uh, purposes and their stories, essentially. And and that was happening all over the ancient world. Hmm. So that, does that explain why you have so many myths that are very similar to the story of Jesus? I mean, it's, uh, a lot of people think it's an original story, but you hear the the virgin birth, the carpenter, the, the disciples, the three day resurrection, all that. That's not a that's not a new story. You know, it's not. We have to be careful about taking those parallels too far. Because a lot of people will go too far in the other direction and say, oh, Christianity is all just stolen from all these mystery faiths. The fact is it is a mystery faith. That's the, that's the difference. Mm. It's not a copycat of mystery faith. It is a mystery faith of its own. Interesting. And we can show that by taking all the biographical information we have for Jesus, which boils down to just one book ultimately, and that's what we call the Gospel of Mark. That book ultimately gives us all the biographical information we have for Jesus. Before that book was written, Christians like Paul and everyone in his generation, they talk about Jesus in a very different way than anybody does after the Gospels start being written. Interesting, interesting. So when you wrote your book, how was it well-received? <laughs> it's funny. I didn't expect the Christians to, to love it, and they really didn't. But what surprised me the most was how many atheists gave me flack about it, saying, oh, all their, all their BS alarms went off. They, they lumped in denying the history of Jesus the same way they do denying the Holocaust or the moon landing. That's the level of crackpottedness that they assign it to. And that surprised me so much that the book I'm working on now and have been working on for the last year and a half or so is called Jesus Mything in Action. That book takes on all the arguments I hear from, from atheists like myself and you and points out all the problems we have with a historical Jesus. And, and the thing I want to emphasize is that we have such problematic evidence for Jesus that even if Jesus really existed for all extents and purposes, as Robert Price likes to say, he doesn't exist anymore because everything we know about that guy comes from writers who were writing about something that has nothing to do with anybody who actually lived in the first century. So in other words, today's depiction of Jesus is nowhere near what the guy supposedly was. Absolutely. And again, that's true whether Jesus was real or totally myth mythological. Because everything we have are myths about Jesus. The question is, was there a real Jesus uh, hidden behind all these layers of what we have now? Yeah, I think a lot of us have a tendency to say, oh, okay, well... Yeah, we don't believe that the, the Son of, of God was on earth and making miracles and all that, but there must have been some kind of charismatic rabbi at the time. Right, and you know, there's nothing implausible about that idea. There's nothing unrealistic or unhistorical about saying he was just one more loser messiah like we had plenty of in the first century. It's just that the evidence that we have, I feel and other people feel, doesn't point in that direction. And the more you look at the evidence we have, the more it looks like that he's a complete literary figure. So so you sir you're you're a mythicist obviously. So what right. was the smoking gun for you when you did your research because you actually did what most of us didn't do is actually go out there and research the thing. So what was the smoking gun? What were you actually convinced of saying, you know what? I think this is a crock. Well, whatever you say about what Jesus did or said or taught or was, you have to ask yourself, what's our sources for that? And it turns out that no matter what you say about Jesus, all our sources boil down to the same thing, and ultimately it boils down to that one book of Mark's. It doesn't boil down to the New Testament epistles. 
doesn't boil down to what Paul said because he says almost nothing about the real, quote, historical Jesus. It, we all get our biographical information from the same place that Matthew and Luke and John did from the Gospel of Mark. And that seems to be an allegory from start to finish. And in the new book, that's what I explore and point out that every single thing that we have from birth to death in that gospel is an allegory. Okay, I find that interesting. So, so let's say, for example, that let's say, for example, that there was a charismatic rabbi, and his in his supposed life, what what struck you as this has to be a myth, you know, in his in the story of Mark? Right, and again, there's nothing unrealistic about that, but there's a paradox behind this that I talk about in Nailed. I said, either this guy taught all these amazing things, if not did all these amazing miracles and healings and whatnot. And yet no one noticed outside his little fringe cult for almost 100 years. Or he didn't do these things. He didn't teach these things. And yet as soon as he's dead, we have all these feuding little fringe cultlets, not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, but scattered all over the Roman Empire that can't seem to agree about the first thing about his life, his career, who he hung out with, who his family was, anything about his life. That paradox alone that was a huge red flag for me that something has gone wrong here. Yeah, and I totally agree. I think I think I stand with you on on that. I mean, I wish we had something, even a a piece of papyrus that said, yeah, from a Pharisee saying, yeah, there was this Jesus fellow that came in today. He says the Son of God, and we condemned him to death, or you know, a receipt for a carpenter's table or something. There's absolutely <laughs> and, nothing. And it, in fact, the opposite is true. We have all this evidence that, um, for instance, they were forging passages in scripture and in, in historical documents to make that claim. For instance, the two, the two references in, in Josephus, Flavius Josephus, this uh, first century Jewish historian, he's the only one they can really point to that talks about Jesus. But the two passages where he talks about it, nobody says these aren't forgeries anymore. They're obviously forgeries. They only say they've moved the goalposts and try to say, well, it's not a complete forgery. And it is a complete forgery. There's no two ways about it. Let, let me get this straight. Everything that we have about Jesus, that we don't have about Jesus, points to nothing. And the, the, what we do have that might point to an actual guy is actually a forgery. Exactly. And it's even worse than that because let's say, for instance, that the, that he was a stealth messiah. That that you know he was just one more Jewish uh, rabbi at the time uh, who taught these amazing things. Where are these other Jesuses that they complain about? In both Paul's letter and in the New Testament, they complain about people preaching another Jesus, another Christ, another gospel. If Jesus really was one teacher and had 12 apostles and that's where Christianity started, it makes no sense that there's other people at the same time being preached by other people. It doesn't that make sense somewhat in the historic context? Because at the time, under Roman Empire, they were essentially awaiting a military leader. The Jewish people were awaiting a military leader. That's why they were awaiting a messiah. And that's why so many um, pseudo-messiahs came out trying to be that guy. Well, there definitely was messiah fever at the time. And that's something I talk about in the new book. you got to love that uh, messiah the, fever. The reason, like something the reason that Christianity starts around the first part of the first century is because of all these rebooted prophecies that were reinterpreted and reinterpreted to account for failures of earlier prophecies. Everyone was expecting a Messiah to come back around the first part of the first century. But 
at that time, Judaism was so varied and so diverse that nobody could agree in Jewish circles about what that pro- that Messiah was going to look like. Was he going to be a military Messiah? Was he going to be a spiritual Messiah? Was he going to be a mystical Messiah? That's what uh, nobody could agree on. And no matter what had happened in the first century, there would have been a group of Jews that could have said, oh, yeah, we prophesied this all along. We knew this was going to happen, no matter how the first century turned out. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're playing without the net, in other words. You know, no matter exactly. what happens, you'll you'll score. It's the sharpshooter fallacy. You circle the bullseyes after the shots have already been put into the wall. <laughs> good one, good one. <laughs> so, um, your conclusions in your book, how were they received in historical or scientific circles? Um, well, again, the thing that surprised me the most was uh, – I w- I'm, well, let me back up a little bit. I'm very pleased with the reception that the book got in 2010, and it's still selling in 2015. Um, and I'm very pleased about that. And it's a fantastic I read. I had a hard time to put it down. Thank you so much. I had a hard time. I, you know, I didn't have a problem with atheists disagreeing with me. I mean, that's nothing special. But I was totally shocked by how vociferously they disagreed with me. It's like they didn't just disagree with me. All their BS alarms were going off. And like I said, they they compared this to like denying the moon landing or anti-vaccines or climate change denial. It's like all their BS alarms were going off. And what I want to point out in the new book is like most of what they are saying to prop up their arguments, they're inheriting from the Christians. Uh, Even secular biblical scholars are inheriting what they think is are established facts that are nothing of the sort. And again, this is coming from a Christian bias in biblical history, which has always been there, has always dominated it. And as I point out in the book, there are not just secular biblical historians, but Bible-believing, devout Christian biblical historians who have gotten their careers derailed or in some cases axed for things that were far less blasphemous than saying Jesus didn't exist. If they step over the theological line, they're gone. Boom. And I give case study after case study of this in the book. I also – I couldn't believe we were the first people to do this, but apparently we were. Uh, we made a survey of all the institutions in America that grant degrees in biblical studies, Jesus studies, biblical history, that kind of thing, and found out how many of them were, A, Christian institutions, and more importantly, how many of those Christian institutions – required their staff to sign a confession of faith saying, we believe this and we will always believe this. That's the scary part. Is it's, it's When you have somebody say, oh, well, all biblical historians agree, blah, 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 blah. First of all, they don't. Second of all, the ones who do agree, how many of those are forced to agree to keep their jobs? That's a huge question that doesn't get asked. Wow, that's interesting. It's uh, something you actually hear often on the other side. You'll hear often right. conspiracy theories about how the scientists are keeping the evidence down. But Absolutely. Uh, and isn't it ironic that for in the Christian's case, that's literally true? <laughs> wow. So, all right. So, so besides the book of Mark, and you can't even call it evidence, do we have absolutely anything about, at all that can actually somewhat point that maybe there was this rabbi? Well... Like I said, it's not that there's no evidence for Jesus. The question is, do we have any good evidence for Jesus? We have the writings that were generated by his cult you know, for the first hundred years or so. We have um, sources outside Christianity 
that talk about Christianity for the most part, and some of them mention the deity figure they worship. But again, those are people talking about Christians for the most part and who they worship. They're not talking about Jesus. Um, in fact, all of the, the sources we have outside of Josephus fall into that category. And again, the, one, the only one that seems to be actually giving historical evidence for Jesus is Flavius Josephus. And I spend uh, plenty of time in Nailed and in the new book pointing out that, A, as Bart Ehrman says, even if every single thing in that passage is true, it's just what he would have learned from any Christian on the street. And, and again, he and all the other so-called historical witnesses for Jesus, none of them were even alive at the time that Jesus was meant to have been alive. So that's something to bear in mind too. Not that there weren't plenty of witnesses on hand when Jesus was alive to bear witness and who were interested in what was going on in Jerusalem that, uh, that we wouldn't have an account of him, even if he was just another preacher at the time. Um, and yet we don't have anything contemporary with Jesus at all. Everything we have is starting at the very end of the first century with Josephus, and then everything else is second century, third century, fourth century, even later. Wow. So so the, nobody from his time. And you would think, you know, if he is the most charismatic figure on the planet, you'd think somebody would have noticed him. You would think somebody. I mean, it's not crazy to think that that no one would notice him if he was just an average Judean preacher. Um, certainly if you were a Christian and you believed that, that the there were major earthquakes and the sun darkened and um, all the dead saints came out of their graves in Jerusalem and appeared oh, to many. I love that one. That is a huge problem because there's no historical evidence for any of that, not even in the other Gospels. Um, but the problem is, even if he was just a, again, just a normal guy, why do we have evidence for people who are so much less interesting than him and none for him? That's, that's a question. You can't handle the truth! Ha! <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I also love the, I think there's that passage in the Bible where they, they have trouble identifying him, and that's why they need Judith to go and identify the man. I mean, he just he just came through the city with uh, a claim as a king, and two days later they can't recognize who he is uh, for some reason. So, <laughs> Or what's funny, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter heals a, a, a beggar who was crippled since birth, and the Pharisees just lose their minds over this. They're saying, oh my goodness, we, the whole town is talking about this miracle, we can't hush it up. And the Romans are scratching their head about, well, what's this all about? This is some weird, obscure Jewish thing. And it's like, okay, that's what they're worried about? Uh, didn't Jesus just you know, raise from the dead and ascend into heaven? And according to Luke, <laughs> isn't he still alive 40 days later? And yet this is what you're worried about? Yeah, even, raising Lazarus and all that. <laughs> yeah, even in the New Testament itself, this story doesn't hold up. No, I <laughs> No offense to Jesus, but I think he's also pretty lame. I mean, he, he goes out and he heals one leper. Instead of curing leprosy, he just heals one leper. You know, it's like he's just turning the tap off, you know, on the miracles. Just short little things. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny how different Jesus is from gospel to gospel, too. The, our very first gospel, it's very no frills, very low rent. And Jesus is kind of a kind of a loser, you know. He can't, doesn't always get his miracles right, and sometimes he has to try again. And he loses his temper, and he's kind of a dick to people. And when he dies, he's miserable and sad, and says, "Oh my God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" You know. Um, and it's not until after 
he gets resurrected from the dead, that he becomes exalted to he – he gets a promotion to become lord. For that, his, his whole story is just of a normal guy who, because he was faithful to God, God adopts him as his son. Is it is it true the uh, the rumor that says the uh, divinity of Jesus wasn't really proclaimed till after the uh, quote unquote famous Council of Nicaea? You know, it's only then he was he was like a mighty prophet before that, but after that he was definitely the the son of God. Yeah, no, I don't agree at all. In fact, um, and I also disagree with the the ones who've been trying to say that Christianity was just an invention of the Romans. That's just ridiculous, and you have to ignore like decades and decades of religious evolution to say something like that. But the Council of Nicaea, people put a lot more importance on that for Christianity than is probably warranted because it wasn't even as if the the canon of the New Testament was established there. That was just one of many things they were talking about, and you could also argue that it didn't even solve it, it and that Christianity's canon has never been finalized because all the different traditions, the Orthodox traditions, Catholic traditions, Protestants, they all have their own New Testament canons. In fact, it's interesting. Um, if you go to the 4th century, our two oldest complete New Testaments, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, they don't agree with each other. Um, one has books the other one doesn't have and doesn't have books the other has. But both of them have books we don't have, and we have books neither of them have. So it's 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 even worse than we think when it comes to stat- how the, the Christian canon got established. That's very very messy process. Yeah, very messy indeed. So, in in conclusion, when you say the they call it the greatest story ever told, is it is it a lie? <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I don't think it was a con job the way Mormonism clearly was and demonstrably was. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the people who wrote these books, like the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels that came later, and the people who like Paul who wrote their letters, I don't think they were con artists per se. I think they were probably very sincere, but their intention was different than what we expect. Mark, the what guy we call Mark, rather, he was setting out to write an allegory about the Messiah, about why Jerusalem wasn't saved in the war with Rome, um, what Christians need to do now that that happened. Um, I think he expected his smarter more theologically savvy members of his readership to understand that. And for everybody else, it would just be a nice story because we see that a lot in ancient religions at the time, like Mithraism, um, the things that they, their iconography talks about isn't really about a guy killing a bull. It's about the procession of the equinoxes. It's about, for them, what looked like the entire dome of heaven was spinning on its axis. It was turning into a new age. That's what I think was happening in Christianity. They were starting a new religion, a mystery faith. Paul, Mark even has Jesus say, I'm giving you the mystery of the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm going to do it to you in secret so that other people, if they heard, they would repent and turn away from their sins and be saved. But I'm going to give it to you in secret. And it blows my mind that that's still in our Bibles in Mark 4.11, that he has them saying that. That makes no sense for the Jesus that we think of as somebody who came to earth just to save people. It makes perfect sense if Jesus and his religion started as a mystery faith that only the inner circle was allowed to know about. Hmm. So essentially, yeah, so essentially Christianity is essentially a cult that just made it to the big times. And that the way it always is? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. <laughs> so it's just 
just as true today as it was then. <laughs> so I want to take a, a brief minute here to talk about the uh, appearance of Jesus, especially in the sure. United States. Uh, for some reason, where did this white, blue hair, uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus come from? I mean, this is anybody with two brain cells cannot possibly think this is this is real, a real depiction of a man from the Middle East. And you know what's funny is it's never been any clearer, even from the very earliest depictions we have of Jesus. We've got swarthy Jesus, dark Jesus, blonde-haired Jesus. One of our earliest depictions of Jesus, he's got a short Roman haircut, and he's using a magic wand to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's walking around in a toga. He looks just like any other Roman guy at the time. No beard, no no facial hair at all. And then not too much further, you see him depicted as the sun god Helios in a, uh, a mosaic that I believe is still in the Vatican, actually, somewhere in Rome anyway, mm-hmm. where the the images and the, the face of Jesus changes according to whatever context and whatever community is looking at him. Um, there's a great quote from one of the early church fathers, Origen, where he says, and Jesus, too, is many things according to the conception of him, which I – I just you, – you can't make up this kind of stuff. No, no, and uh, I was talking to uh, one of my uh, co-hosts on the podcast, Liam, and he was talking about went to, to sell Jesus to the Norse. They depicted him as a great warrior, you know, that won many battles with his sword and everything, which is exactly what Christianity – how Christianity survived all these times is exactly by adapting like that, adapting to uh, – uh, to the the culture that they were trying to assimilate, I guess, in a way. So true, and you can see that in the um, symbolism, like the Celtic cross. When they went to Ireland, Scotland, and Britain, um, the reason you have the, the the cross with the circle through it is because that was a, a, a religious symbol of the Celts, the sun symbol. Um, and you could you could expand that example after example of that. Hmm. So the to go back on the. Uh, Blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, I was told that that was actually a Nazi thing. Well, you know what? It's funny. There definitely was a Nazi Jesus, an Aryan Jesus, um, that Hitler was trying to start. He wanted to make a Aryan version of Christianity. Uh, I forget what he called it. I want to say it was something like positive Christianity, something like that. Yes, that's a good but we idea. actually we actually have pictures of like the the. The church uh, archaeology – not archaeology. The church architecture they were going to use for this church and the images, and it's very fascist. It's very eagles and you know uh, art deco and Jesus massive and muscular and Arnold Schwarzeneggerian. Um, it's just what you would expect from a church that Hitler wants to put together. And it's, in- it's interesting that you see a lot of that on uh, social media. You'll see a lot of Jesus, you know, I've seen images of Jesus, you know, coming out of the tomb, and he, he he looks like, exactly, he's been pumping iron, he's got this huge chest all of a sudden, you know, one breaking away from the cross, he's built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you're thinking, wow, there's, there's another example of Jesus adapting to our modern view, I guess. Yeah, there there's a great book called The Face of Jesus, and it talks about just the incredible, incredible diversity of how people have been picturing Jesus uh, right from the get-go. I mean, early Christians didn't couldn't even agree on how old he was when he died. So some were picturing him as like a 50-year-old, some as a 30-year-old, 40-year-old. Um, some had him dark-haired, some had him, you know, lighter-haired. Uh, you've got even into Asia where he looks very Asian, into Africa where he looks very African, you know, and Coptic. Um, it's, there's just 
you know, as the quote goes, to have many shapes is to have none at all. And that's a, it never been truer than in the case of Jesus. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all that, David. And you've given us a lot to think about. But now this is the time, you know, go ahead, my friend, plug yourself, be shameless. The mic is all yours. Ah. Go ahead in your next book, give it all wherever you're going to be appearing. Uh, let me do that very quick, and I thank you for the, the opportunity to do that. Well, again, my name is David Fitzgerald, and the books I'm most famous for is a book called Nailed, 10 Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All. Uh, I'm working on the follow-up book to that right now called Jesus Missing in Action. I, if uh, you're a Christian and you hate the thought of those two books, you'll love this book. It's The Complete Heretic's Guide to Western Religion, and book one is The Mormons. And uh, believe me, that is fun for Christians and atheists alike. <laughs> um, I talk a lot around the country um, at places like Apostacon and Skepticon and American Atheist Convention. Uh, my next talk will be in, let me think, uh, Reason Con 2 in North Carolina. And then I'll be talking at Gateway to Reason. Uh, this month I'll be on a panel with Richard Carrier and Robert Price in San Jose on mythicism. Um, that should be good. Put on by, mm. Yeah, that should be pretty good. <laughs> with Richard Carrier yeah, and that, that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> and you can find me on Facebook as Dave Fitzgerald or you can look me online at everybodylovesdave at gmail.com. Uh, to hunt me down or send me an email. Awesome. Do we ever get? Uh, are we ever going to get to see you up in Canada? I would love that. Let's make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to lobby the people that imagine no religion to bring you down for the next one. Let's do. <laughs> and that's coming up soon, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the next uh, the next one is uh, in June, but uh, I don't know if the if we can book you for that one. Hopefully, we can book you for Imagine No Religion Six. Yeah, I was going to say, this year has been a pretty tight squeeze, but next year I would love to do that. So everybody who's at Imagine No Religion, be sure to go up to the organizer and say, hey, let's get Dave Fitzgerald there next year. Sounds like a great plan. <laughs> well, thank you so much, David. And uh, you've got friends up here in Canada, and we hope to bring you back soon to have more interesting chats like that. I would love that very, very much. Thanks so much, Kevin. Have a great day. You too now. And that was David Fitzgerald. Great guy, great interview. I can't wait to hopefully bring out here. Oh, what an addition he'd make to any program, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll have a live edition of Left of the Valley. <laughs> By the way, uh, might as well announce it. Uh, don't know if you guys knew, but uh, we are going to be at Imaginal Religion 5, and we actually uh, managed to score an interview with Dr. Lawrence Krause, or should I say Professor yeah. Lawrence Krause. Mm -hmm. That's going to be fun. And one of the first questions apparently I have to ask him is how many pairs of Converse shoes does he have? Because he's always wearing those. <laughs> yeah, maybe some of the listeners have some questions that they've always wanted to ask him or they're curious about. And maybe they should email you some questions so that you can reflect some of the uh, questions from, from the listeners as well as the ones that uh, you think of yourself. Yeah, I totally think they should do that. Yeah. Well, I guess that takes us to the end of our show. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you so much for being there. You can follow us at the leftofthevalley.com you can follow us on Facebook or you can go to Blog Talk if you sign up at Blog Talk um, essentially as soon as we do a show they're going to send you an email saying that we're about to be on um, future shows we have uh, Hemet Mehta that we had an interview with that's going to come on as well and the next show we actually have a guest that, uh, a survivor from cancer she had the stomach cancer inspiring little story keep an eye on that anything else you guys want to add to this? No, thanks for listening. No, we all got to speak our minds. Exactly. <laughs> and so listen in there. Speak your mind, guys. You know, there's plenty of time to be silent when you're dead. 
Yeah, I like that quote. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Thank you.